Please turn in your Bibles at home to our passage this evening. We're going back to the Elisha narrative here in 2 Kings, and we're going to read the first several verses of 2 Kings chapter 6. So please turn with me there in your Bibles. We're going to be focusing on the first seven verses here of this chapter, 2 Kings chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is God's holy and inspired and infallible Word. Uh, Let's listen carefully to it as the Lord would instruct us from this portion of His Word this evening. We read here, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. And here we're going to end our reading of God's holy word this evening. Well, saints of God, as believers, uh, we commonly open up our Bibles, we, we flip to a passage, and the first question that we ask of God's Word is this, what's here for me? What's here for me? We often approach God's Word desiring some, some straightforward lesson for our lives that we can take to the bank, so to speak, uh, to help us in raising our families, in cultivating our marriages, or living the Christian life. But there are some portions of Scripture that just seem to defy an easy answer to that question, what's here for me? And as we were reading this passage this evening, perhaps you said, this is that kind of passage. Uh, What do we do with this brief, uh, rather unusual event in 2 Kings chapter 6? This seems to us to be such an unlikely miracle hardly worth God's time to raise an axe head from the river. And so many teachers who've come across a passage like this who realize, well, we need to say something here about this, have tempted to insert a sort of a moral lesson into uh, this passage. Some might say, well, uh, this passage is here to remind us that we ought to be careful when we're borrowing other people's tools. We should make sure they're in good working order before we bring them home, lest something like this happens. Maybe we should gather from this passage of God's Word that we should be careful not to build our our homes near a river or another body of water. Or maybe it's ministers that are in view here. Ministers shouldn't fancy themselves contractors or construction workers. They shouldn't try to build their own homes. They just get into trouble. Leave it to the professionals. Well, obviously, uh, such interpretations are more uh, silly, more humorous, or ridiculous than accurate. We shouldn't try to, to moralize a passage like this, but even for us who, who realize that, uh, the meaning of this passage might not be readily plain to us. Well, perhaps the problem 
when we face passages like this is that we are asking the wrong question off the bat. Our quest so often when we open God's Word, our quest is often too human-centered. As I said, we begin with the question, what's here for me? And we forget something about the Bible. We forget that the Bible is primarily a revelation by God, and it's about God. The primary purpose of the Bible, dear saints of God, is to reveal to us something about our God Himself, who He is in His very character, what He has done, how He has shown His power on behalf of His people to save them and rescue them. The Bible is about God before it's about us. And so our first question when we open God's Word should really not be, what's here for me, but rather, what does this passage teach me about my God? And when we begin with that question, when we start there, then a passage like this becomes clearer to us in its meaning. It teaches us that the God that we serve often reveals His power by bringing good out of evil. A passage like this shows us that God, by the might of His Word, commands even nature itself to obey Him. The God that we encounter in a passage like this is a God who meets His servants' needs, even in the little things. And so in particular tonight, I want you to notice with me two things. First, that we, we serve a God who is a Redeemer. He's a God who redeems sinners and, in fact, all of creation from bondage to sin. And He's also a God, secondly, who is our provider. That Because God is our Redeemer through Jesus, we can count on Him to govern our lives by His providence to meet our basic and most ordinary needs. First, we see in this passage, our redeeming God, the God who redeems. And I want to begin by setting the stage of this event here in 2 Kings chapter 6. We read here that Elisha the prophet is once again meeting with the sons of the prophets. And you may remember from a few weeks ago when I preached about the sons of the prophets, the sons of the prophets were that community of God-fearing leaders in Israel who assisted the prophets, the major prophets, in caring for the souls of the people of Judah, in making God's will known among the people. Uh, they were the right-hand men of the, of the prophets, you might say. We, we might call them the seminarians of Israel. And we learn here that the place where they typically met, their, their commune, their dwelling place, where they came together to hear God's Word, where they came together to discuss God's Word with the prophet, it was getting a bit small for them, a bit cramped. And so they asked permission of Elisha to all pitch in and go to the Jordan to gather logs to build a new meeting place. And Elisha approves of the building plans, and, and one of the seminarians requests that he come along with them to oversee the project, and he agrees. But no sooner had the felling of trees begun when disaster struck. There was an accident, which frequently happens when men work with tools. An axe head 
had flown off its handle and landed right into the river, not likely to be retrieved by any uh, normal means. And the seminarian who has lost his axe head is beside himself. He's extremely troubled, and he cries out to Elisha and says, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. It wasn't mine. I borrowed the axe. What am I going to do? Now, we, we, we sort of scratch our heads. We're a bit puzzled at this point. We say, Why is that such a big deal? This seems like such a minor issue. Today, we would quickly run over to Home Depot uh, with a mask and gloves, of course, and we pick up an entire axe for less than 30 bucks. And so, we're, we're tempted to trivialize uh, the, the problem here in this passage, but our tendency to do that, our tendency to trivialize this incident reflects just how foreign the world of Israel in the ninth century B.C. really is. Because while iron, the kind of iron that would be used to make an axe head, while iron was indigenous to the promised land where Israel lived, although it was a native to that land, we know, both from historical studies and from Scripture itself, that at least for a while Israel lagged behind her neighbors in developing the kind of technology that was necessary to smelt iron and, and make an axe head. And so, in fact, an axe head was a highly sought-after commodity. It would not have been cheap to replace. One commentator says this, iron implements like an axe head would have been tremendously expensive. Many hours of labor would have been required to gather the wood for fires to refine the ore and then to shape and sharpen the tool. There was not much discretionary income in ancient Israel. It's not like you had some money laying aside just in case you, you lost an important tool like an axe. And so the commentator says this, losing a borrowed axe head at that time would have been comparable to wrecking a borrowed car today. We're beginning slowly to understand why this son of the prophets, this seminarian, is so troubled, so tense. And if that's not bad enough, on top of all of that, ancient Near Eastern culture was not very big on commercial loans. And so if you were a borrower like this seminarian, and you found yourself in a rather desperate situation, you were a person who was dependent upon others to meet your basic needs, how especially tragic, then, that this borrower should become a debtor based on losing this axe head. And the seminarian knew the law of Moses. The law of Moses required him to pay back the man uh, for the loss of his axe head, but with what would he pay him back? He was a seminarian, and I speak from experience when I say seminarians are poor. They don't have extra funds laying around for a rainy day. In order to pay the debt of this axe head to his creditor, he would have to become an indentured servant. And so nothing less than the threat of human bondage hung over this young seminarian. Well, it's especially merciful then that God's prophet Elisha intervenes into this situation, and he simply asks, 
the son of the prophets, where the axe head had entered the water, and he cuts a piece of wood, and he throws it to the spot. And just like a stick of wood would, would float on the top of the water, so there comes the axe head. It floats to the top. The son of the prophet says only to reach out and pluck it out of the water. Disaster averted. Now what do we learn about God from this event? What do we learn about God? We learn that He is a redeeming God. And I think we see God demonstrating His redemptive power and grace here in at least three ways. First, He reveals Himself to be the Redeemer of His covenant people, Israel. Remember that this book this record, First and Second Kings, was not written, it was not finished and completed until after the people of Judah had been carried out, carried off into Babylonian exile. People of Israel had lost their sacred space. They had lost their kingdom because the people had lost their way. They had turned to the idol gods of the nations rather than the one true God of Israel. And so they would have read this account of the, the raising of the axe head from the river. They would have read this account of Elisha's miracle in a state of great distress. They read this account in, in, in need of grace, in, in need of forgiveness and restoration. Israel needed a reminder about the faithfulness of their redeeming God. And that's the message that would have been conveyed to the people as they read this in exile, in captivity. The call to them was this, look to your covenant faithful God who has never left you, who is still available to you. Look and see how His, His mighty arm works salvation and redemption for the lost, for the needy, for those who owe an unpayable debt. Turn from your sin and idolatry and seek this God who offers Himself to you as your Redeemer. Indeed, Israel could have been encouraged because even at the time of this miracle, God says, I'm preserving for Myself over 7,000 men who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And I am the Redeemer, the Savior of those. I am the one who mercifully provides for those who turn from their sin and turn to me in faith. Israel should have been reminded from this miracle, even while in exile, that God was the God who would fulfill His promise to provide a Messiah, a Savior, who would come, Isaiah said in chapter 61, to bring good news to the poor, to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to those who are captives, to those who are bound. And so God reveals Himself to be Israel's Redeemer here, but secondly, He reveals Himself to be the Redeemer of creation itself. Remember, brothers and sisters, that all miracles, all miracles which suspend natural laws, reverse the disorder of creation, all miracles are redemptive. We're told in Romans 8 that through the fall into sin, creation itself was subject to futility. Creation itself is in bondage to corruption, Paul says. 
and creation often frustrates our work. Just like it did for this seminarian, we think of the frustrating effect of bad weather upon our lives, of physical weakness that keeps us from working the way we would like to do. We think of accidents at work, which make it so unpleasant. We think of this virus that is circulating around, which has disrupted all of our lives. We are affected daily by the brokenness of creation itself. And the seminarian certainly was troubled by the brokenness of creation as this axe head is lost into the river. But this miracle anticipates it. It looks forward to a day when God will fully redeem and renew creation. He will set it right so that it no longer frustrates our work and our lives, but actually we will take part. It will take part in our continued labor to service to God in the new heavens and the new earth. God places before us a reminder that He is going to reverse the curse. He's going to set things right again in His creation. He's the Redeemer of creation itself. But finally, here we see in the third place that God reveals Himself to be our Redeemer here. We're reminded that our sins incurred an immense debt before the holy God, a debt that we could not possibly pay on our own. Romans 6 says, we were once slaves to sin, indentured servants to sin, and that sin leads to death. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God is in the business of proclaiming good news to the captive. He's good new, he preaches good news to the poor, and He has satisfied all claims against us in Jesus Christ, who has fully paid our debt. He's removed us from bondage to sin and death. And so, amazingly, God reveals Himself here to be our Redeemer when He raises an axe head from the river, when He frees this servant from the threat of an impossible debt that He could not pay. Just as through faith in Christ, our Redeemer, we are released from bondage to sin and to death, a debt we could not pay. And so God reveals Himself here to be our great Redeemer. But He also reveals Himself, secondly, as the God who provides. Having studied a bit of the context here, the historical context, we realize that this son of the prophets, this seminarian, had a legitimate problem on his hands. He had a, he had a reason to be rather tense and troubled by these events. And yet it's nevertheless the truth that this passage records a relatively ordinary event, especially if we compare it to those events that surround it in the greater narrative. If you have your Bibles out in front of you, if you look back to chapter 5 in 2 Kings, we, we encounter another miracle of Elisha, the miraculous healing of Naaman. And Naaman was a very important man. He was a powerful Syrian commander. And Elisha healed him from leprosy, very big event there. If we move forward in, in the narrative in chapter 6, we read about some very serious military encounters between Israel and Syria. We read about the Syrian siege of Samaria. We read some very gruesome details there about the famine there and even cannibalism in the city. Major events. 
So does it strike you odd that smack dab in the middle of these world-altering events, we should read that God raised an axe head from a river? Seems out of place. It's like sitting at the, the breakfast table and opening up your newspaper, and there on the front page you read about conflicts in the Middle East. You read about worldwide terror threats, economic collapse, the coronavirus. And then right there in the middle of it all, on page one, you read a, a story about an obscure high school student who's worried about taking her final exams. You'd probably spit out your coffee and call to your wife and say, what's this doing here? This is out of place. This isn't front page worthy stuff. We wonder sometimes, isn't it below God to be concerned with life's seemingly trivial matters? But something that this passage reveals to us, brothers and sisters, is this, that it is precisely because God is our Redeemer through Jesus Christ that He is faithful in the little or the ordinary, the mundane things of life. You see, we have a mistaken view of God. If we think that He is so high and so mighty, so transcendent, so other, that he doesn't care to attend to the small details of our lives. The reality is that the greatness of our God consists in large measure in the fact that he is faithful even in the little things. In fact, this is what we affirm when we confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We are confessing is that he will provide whatever we need for body and soul. He can do that because He's Almighty God. He desires to do that because He is our loving Heavenly Father. He cares for us intimately. He will give us whatever we need for body and soul. And so we mustn't be too proud to confess to God our most mundane and ordinary needs, to bring to the Lord our daily bread and say, Lord, I need this. Please provide even in this small way. For our God dwells in heaven, to be sure, but our smallest needs matter to Him. And isn't that what our Lord Jesus teaches us when He calms stormy lakes? Isn't that what He's teaching us when He fills the nets of fishermen, when He feeds the hungry, rather than sending them home to feed themselves? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching us when He heals the sick and the paralyzed, when He embraces little children rather than sending them away, when He furnishes a morning fish fry on the beach for His disciples to feed them? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching us when He says that God counts and cares for every hair upon our heads? You see, when we confess that the Almighty God is not so high, not so transcendent that He ignores our daily need. What we're really confessing is a doctrine of God's providence. That by His providence, God so orders all events, whether great or small, providing for our need before that need even arises. We see that 
revelation of God's providence here in chapter 6 of 2 Kings. God provided a head by moving one of the sons of prophets to request that Elisha the prophet should come along with them as they cut trees by the river. I think we should see this as a request of faith. Man of God, be with this project. Put your blessing upon it. And if Elisha doesn't come along, the axe head remains at the bottom of the river. You see, God was providing for His servants. He was working through the ordinary details. He was prompting this request of faith that Elisha should come with so that the provisions were made for a need that was, as of yet, unseen. And that's how God's providence works. And all of our lives are filled with similar stories. So that we look back now, we see how God was graciously working through the ordinary details of our lives to meet our needs at just the right time, in the right measure, so that we would see that He is a God who as our Redeemer is also our provider, even in the small things. Well, since this is the God that we serve, brothers and sisters, what should our response be? Our response should be one of worship, to thank God for His kind providence to us, to give Him the glory for it all. We can also have assurance. We can have comfort in our souls. We can rejoice that the same God who created and sustains the cosmos, the whole universe, and all of history is the same God who cares for you, cares for you. And we can also be expectant. We can expect our God to meet our genuine needs fully and in just the right measure because He delights to glorify Himself by providing for His people. John Newton, the slaver who was turned into a pastor, once wrote this, Not one concern of ours is small if we belong to Him. To teach us this, the Lord of all once made the iron to swim. You see, we mustn't despise this little passage in God's Word. We mustn't skip over it as if it's of no importance or no consequence. Because this small passage here, this small, perhaps unusual event, this unlikely miracle is here to tell us something very important about God. It's here to tell us something very important about our Redeemer, God, who has provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, to rescue us and to rescue all of creation itself from bondage to sin and death. It's here to reveal that God is a God who is building and preserving His church even now and will one day glorify her. This passage is here to teach us about our God who provides, who by His providence cares for the tiny concerns of our lives, giving us all that we need for body and soul, who holds us so tightly that nothing could possibly separate us from His love. And so, dear saints, aren't you profoundly grateful that God caused this axe head to float? Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so prone to think that You are so high and mighty 
that you do not care for things like a lost axe head. We look at a passage like this and we suspect that it made its way accidentally into the Bible. That there's nothing really here for us. But Lord, we are mistaken if that's what we think because we see here such a beautiful revelation of who you are. You are the God who redeems. You redeemed your covenant people Israel despite their unfaithfulness. You, you were patient with them. You revealed yourself to be a great provider, a meter of their greatest need for a Savior. You show us here that you are the God who so rules creation that you can even suspend natural laws in order to, to meet the needs of your people. And one day you will so renew all of creation that it will no longer frustrate our work, but it will join with us in our labors in the new heavens and the new earth. You reveal yourself as our Redeemer, our Savior, as the one who has canceled all claims against us on account of the debt that our sin has incurred. And you have given us your righteousness in Jesus Christ. And in our daily lives, you reveal yourself to be our daily provider, the meter of our daily food and drink, our daily bread, our most basic needs. And so, Lord, let us not be too proud uh, to keep from coming to you to, to say, my axe head is in the water. I have a special need. It may be private. It may be a silent need, but a legitimate need nonetheless, a need that you are already, by your providence, working to meet in full measure, beyond what we could even imagine or think. Thank you for revealing yourself to us this way in this beautiful passage, O Lord, and help us to respond in the faith and worship, gratitude and assurance uh, that we are meant to enjoy. Also, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our song of application tonight actually comes from the celebration hymnal, and the lyrics should be up on the screen for you very soon. We're going to sing from number 680, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, and we'll sing stanzas one and two, one and two of number 680. <laughs> 